Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Brought to you by Leaving the Ring Network. All boxing. No filter. Fisgianados with Evan Rutkowski. He's a good boy, you know. Hello, fight fans. It is Wednesday, May 22nd, and this is the Fisgianados podcast on the Leave It in the Ring radio network. I'm your host, Evan Rutkowski, former HBO sports marketing executive, giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing on your screen and behind the scenes. Emergency pod this week, based on what happened last weekend. I got really excited. Uh, let me just get to the other stuff. Email me at fistianos at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at fistianos pod. We're brought to you by Ring Magazine and ringtv.com. Emergency pod for a couple reasons. And like I said, first and foremost, I think what happened over the weekend, a lot of cool ramifications from it. You know, mostly what happened on Showtime. That's really what got me excited. Also, selfishly, I am taking a couple days off on either side of the long weekend to go on vacation with my family uh, and have a couple big things next week. So I just wanted to get this out of the way. And I felt like this is what I'd be talking about anyways, because this stuff is awesome. So let's go right into it. Let's get to the review section. um, And I'll just review the one week of action. uh, And then I'll only preview one. You know, I guess I'll preview two weeks, but I'll add in the the. AJ fight at the end. So quickly on the ESPN Plus show uh, on Friday, Ryan Burnett won by KO6, and then BJ Saunders the next day uh, won by wide decision, and Joe Joyce beat Ustinov by KO3. Not a whole lot of ramifications from that stuff, so let's move on to the really good stuff and and quite frankly why we're doing the pod. But let's actually start. I think it's worth spending a little bit of time on what happened with the World Boxing Super Series. Let's go through that first. Uh, the World Boxing Super Series, and, and just to, you know, the wilder stuff is obviously that's going to be the deep dive here. Uh, the World Boxing Super Series, like maybe after the finals, could actually be its own deep dive because I think what it did was extremely significant again. Uh, this past fight card is a great fight card. And really, with the World Boxing Super Series, the second season. We've seen entertaining fights in each round of it. I mean, yeah, the first round did have some mismatches, and it also had some really good fights and some good TV. The second round has been really great so far. We still have another fight card for the second round. Not only have we seen entertaining fight cards that, like, you can now say, I mean, going into it, part of the attraction for fighters and and, and for the managers of these fighters where the purses were really big and, and they were in divisions many times that didn't have big purses. Now we even have managers of the fighters involved saying that these purses are less than what they would get on the open market. Be, you know, obviously not at the time, but right now the way that the, the market for fighter costs has moved, these are cost controlled compared to what we're seeing on network TV, at least in the United States. Uh, and I think this season Last season, we had Usyk, who clearly broke out as a star. We might have two, if not three, breakout stars uh, this this season. You know, Usyk basically, until his recent injury, I mean, he built on crazy momentum he got from the World Boxing Super Series. And I think once he has a great fight at heavyweight, can quickly establish himself in that, you know, he can make the top three sort of a top four. Uh, so that's that's been quite a platform for him. Let's move on. I mean, Naoya Inoue and whoever wins at 140, maybe even both fighters at 140, 
uh, are on very similar trajectories right now. And so before we get to the 140 title, let's talk about Inouye, who has been on many of those hipster pound-for-pound boxing lists for a while and who is starting to appear on mainstream pound-for-pound lists now, maybe even as high as number one in certain uh, pound-for-pound lists. And as a fan, I don't really care about pound-for-pound, but as a marketer, it's an extremely important tool. In a way, now is in that rarefied air in terms of being, in terms of seeing a fighter who's hitting the world stage and just absolutely destroying really good fighters, and it's happening in jaw-dropping fashion. Like we're now at the point where he is showing that perfect combination of skill and power. That it's a rarity in any division, but at the lower weight classes especially, you almost never see it. Most KOs that happen at a high level in the lower weight classes happen when one fighter wears down the other over a longer period of time. And in a way, is just blasting out world champs in the first round or the second round or whatever. His last few fights are, just to list them, it's KO2 against previously unbeaten Emmanuel Rodriguez for Rodriguez's IBF bantamweight title. And Rodriguez is a really good fighter. KO1 against former world champ Juan Carlos Payano to retain Inoue's piece of the WBA bantamweight title, which he won the fight before against Jamie McDonald by KO1. McDonough, by the way, no slouch who had defended that title six times after he won it. Yes, that was a piece of it, but you know, you get my point. Good competition. Before that, he beat Yohan Bayou by KO3, Antonio Nieves by KO6. That's not really pound-for-pound stuff, but those are solid bets that he was defending his super flyweight title against. And when you, if you go back a few years earlier, he'd already won the WBC light flyweight title. So he's already a three-division world champ. And he, as he's moving up, he's pretty much only fighting top-level competition and completely blowing them out. It's hard to quantify even a comparison to this because the last time it happened was probably with Triple G, and he didn't fight three world champs in a row like Inouye just has. Triple G's, like, he did have some early knockouts, but against a tougher competition, his KOs came from wearing guys down and getting them out late. And, I mean, again, Inouye's just fighting champs and blowing them out. Now, when you look at what what's happening overall, like some of this, you have to give credit to the World Boxing Super Series and what they're doing. I mean, yeah, there's mitigating circumstances. Like I said, Triple G blew people out like that. Wilder has definitely blown people out like that. But neither Wilder nor Triple G, when they were doing it, was doing it against world champs. And some of this comes, is just with the lighter weight classes, the decent paydays are much more scarce than they are at like glamour divisions like middleweight or heavyweight. So... At the lighter weight classes, the paydays have to come in unification fights. So those fights actually happen more often, you know, because they lead to the to higher paydays. And the higher paydays aren't even really that high at the lower weight classes. But the reason we're doing this stuff now is because the World Boxing Super Series is doing a great tournament where almost all the top 118 pounders are in it. I mean, Luis Neri is the only major one that wasn't, though I guess because of injuries to Zelani Tete and Ryan Burnett, like they still actually will have legit shots after the tournament is over to potentially make big fights with Inouye. So not only is the tournament giving a lot of these fighters a platform who probably wouldn't have had it previously, but there's still a pathway to bigger fights when it's over, which is huge. And I mean, you know, when you go back to Inouye with, with, the kind of power that he has, like you'd think that he could probably have a couple fights here and then even move up a weight class, if not two, in the next few years. And I think it's like the other factor is like some of what's happening is we're likely in the early stages of the prime of Inoue's career. And I think what's also just really excited, I guess this is more about just the era that we're in right now, is we as core fans, and I think as as hopefully soon casual fans too, are going to start to see the prime of a generational talent, and it's really exciting to watch. I mean, the exciting thing from my perspective when you look at the landscape of boxing is that even five years ago, like this likely would have been a Chocolatito type of situation where, you know, the big fights are more in East Asia, and you got to have 
kind of have to see the replay on an Asian YouTube site after they happen. There's no buildup. The only people that are going there are really hardcore fans. There's very little money for the fighters or the money, even if it's decent, it's not maximized as to what it should be. And in this new boxing world, we've seen the last three fights on ESPN Plus and DAZN live with, you know, actual decent coverage of the fight. Um, And when I say coverage, I mean like, because it's on a U.S. streaming service, we're actually seeing journalists cover the fight in a real way, whereas previously it would have been a footnote on on some kind of weekend update report or something like that. I mean, it's not covered like a major event in the U.S., but you know, because they're streaming, you're you're seeing it covered. So to me, it's really exciting because it actually puts a potentially generational talent. I I think you could probably take off potentially at this point, a generational talent who isn't just a foreign fighter, but one at a lower weight class and from East Asia, not Europe, it gives this fighter now a stage to succeed, not just in America, but worldwide and not just in East Asia. And I think it's a win for boxing fans, you know, because there just aren't that many previous success stories like this. Like even Pacquiao was a little bit bigger in terms of weight. And he had, when he came to the U.S., he had a long list of established potential opponents during his rise. Uh, so so I don't want to start with those comparisons yet uh, because I don't think Inouye can get quite as big. But I mean, you, you know, you're seeing a, a potential generational thing here and the upside for Inouye is much higher than even even anyone from from as recently as five years ago. And I mean, historically, there have been many of these types of things that have happened that haven't, where the fighter hasn't blown up and gotten the attention they they deserve to get. And I think we're in a uh, you know now in an era where you're much more likely to see this. Um, also on the card, Josh Taylor with a great win over Ivan Baranchik. Had two knockdowns in the fight. The scorecards were it was a unanimous decision. The scorecards, I mean, the fight was really close, although I would say a little bit of the drama was taken out of it because it felt like by round eight or nine, there was not really a pathway for Baranchik to come back, uh, barring a couple of knockdowns. And I think Taylor did a great job. I, I think what we're going to see here is Taylor and Progray in a great finals. I think it's going to be super closely matched. I think both are guys who are big for the 140-pound weight class, both have a chance to move up. These are guys, I mean, in any kind of normal scenario, they seem like the two clear best fighters. And by the way, Baranchik, really great fighter as well. I think he could come back and have a major impact. He could, he will probably win future titles and certainly be a great TV fighter the way that he fought. I mean, even towards the end, he made it a really interesting TV fight. And, I mean, if, if there wasn't... Huge money fights for guys like Progray or Taylor to move up to 147. They might fight two or three times because I think it's going to be really close. And there's just all different ways you can go from here. But the winner is going to be really in prime position. And I think both guys are going to be, you know, I imagine we will see a great fight in the final there. And I imagine we will see potentially both guys become stars out of this. All right. Let's move on to the more, you know, I love the WBSS thing, but let's move on to the more noteworthy development of the weekend. Uh, Like I said, let's just call this the deep dive for the episode. And it's obviously what happened on Showtime. Just to formalize the results, the Mendez-Heraldas fight ends in a draw. It wasn't the best TV. Uh, Gary Russell Jr. wins by KO5 over Kiko Martinez in a fight that probably didn't need to get made and was dominated by Russell. More on that in a second. Uh, Deontay Wilder wins by KO1 uh, over Dominic Brazil. The main event averages 791,000 viewers. It was the number 10 cable show of the day. The other fights got split up. Showtime always does this. They kind of split up uh, the way they do the, the TV ratings into several different shows. The other fights were all in the 550 you know, K range in terms of average viewership. They were in the number 40s in terms of ranked cable shows. One thing to note here is when you count streaming and live TV audiences, uh, the peak number for the event gets up to 990K, so almost a million viewers. The average gets up to 886K. I think that's extremely relevant. I mean, I think with Showtime at this point, 
you should count the streaming numbers with the TV. You know, Showtime doesn't sell ads on their platform, uh, so you might as well count the stream. And it's you know, at HBO we counted streaming with you know not in sports but in other shows. You counted streaming with the live TV number. That's just what we did, and I don't think I think that's a legitimate count. I don't think that's just to boost the number. Uh, potentially even more relevant, which we will get to later, is that at least 10 million people have viewed the highlights on CBS.com so far. Um, so going back to the quickly to Russell uh, Jr. in the undercard, I really did appreciate Russell calling out Leo Santa Cruz and putting the blame on. Leo for not getting the fight made between the two of them. This needed to happen, I think, to keep everybody interested in Russell's career. The narrative and sort of the joke on Russell Jr. is that he only fights once a year. And I actually want to take a closer look at that for a second. Russell fought Lomachenko for the vacant WBO featherweight title in June of 2014 and lost. Let that sink in for a sec. That was basically five years ago at this point. He then came back, he beat Christopher Martin towards the end of that year in 2014, and then he won the WBC featherweight title against Johnny Gonzalez in March of 2015. 2015, March. And remember, Johnny Gonzalez was a solid vet, but he was not supposed to have the title. He only had it because he was the first guy to beat Abner Mares. He knocked Mares out and then had two joke title defenses in Mexico before he lost the title to Gary Russell. So since March of 2015, Russell fought Patrick Hyland in April of 2016, Oscar Escandon in May of 2017, Jojo Diaz in May of 2018, and then he just fought Kiko Martinez. So he actually fights less often than the joke. And he doesn't even fight against good competition. I mean, Jojo Diaz is really the only one out of those four defenses that even remotely make sense, basically. And for someone as talented as Gary Russell Jr., this is crazy. I mean, I know, like, obviously, you can live whatever life you want to live. If he wants to, if he gets paid enough where he can own property and kind of just keep his family together and all that kind of stuff, that's great. I wish him the best, but I don't need to see him fight, and I certainly don't need to see a huge chunk of Showtime's budget go to paying him to fight these kind of fights. Um, Jojo Diaz, I'll make an exception for that. But like since March of 2015, that's what we've gotten. You know, Patrick Hyland, Oscar Escandon, Jojo Diaz, Kiko Martinez. So unless he gets Santa Cruz, unless he gets the, that, that fight, his career is essentially going to be defined by losing to Lomachenko and then winning a bunch of ho-hum title defenses. Maybe I'm, you know, and, and of those defenses, I think Jojo Diaz is probably the only one who is going to sniff being, you know, being a really relevant fighter at the top level. Uh, and Kiko Martinez, yes, he, he has had a good career, but at this point in his career, I don't, I don't think he's there. So let's, let's see that fight get made. Let's see, let's see what Gary Russell Jr. has. Let's see what Leo Santa Cruz has. Both those guys have been fighting you know, for the most part, lower level competition. Santa Cruz has, has taken some bigger fights. I'll give him that credit for that. Uh, you know, I, I've said this several times. I grew up in the D.C. area. I like almost every fighter that comes out of that area. And, you know, we're at the point where I'm glad Gary Russell called out Santa Cruz. And if he doesn't get him, I mean, I actually hope network execs stop paying him huge amounts of money to take these fights that just aren't that interesting. Um, I, I'm really happy for Gary Russell if he gets that Santa Cruz fight and, and can show what he is capable of doing because he doesn't have a career. I mean, he has a career-defining loss, but he does not have a career-defining victory at this point. Anyways, let's go back to the meat of what happened on Saturday night, and that is Deontay Wilder winning by KO1 in about as emphatic fashion as you can get. Not only was it an impressive performance in the ring, but I got excited because it garnered a lot of attention after the fact. And I think we're really at a breaking point here in this. And I'll explain, I'll break it down why. I mean, there's actually, there's a ton of different narratives that you can explore from this fight, um, just from a business perspective, not even from, from inside the ring. Before what before we even get to some of what it means for sort of some of the bigger fights that can get made in the heavyweight division, 
Let's talk about what it meant for Showtime. I mean, there's so much riding on this for Showtime just as a place that televises boxing. And I actually think there's sort of a separate deep dive there. And and side note, I haven't talked a lot about what's happening at Showtime or ESPN this year. You know, I realize I've been sort of heavy on DAZN and Fox or just sort of PBC in general. Um, but you know, I mean, just as a note to listeners, I kind of pick my deep dives based on what's interesting to me and nothing really on an individual level that's happened on Showtime in 2019 has been that interesting. And the only thing on ESPN that I found interesting happened in February, which I covered with the deep dive there. Um, and sort of everything else, pay-per-views notwithstanding, just hasn't been worth doing a deep dive. And I think we're starting to get that point where you can start to look at things in the aggregate and it starts to get interesting. Um, but that's why I've been, and I, that's not a knock on Showtime or ESPN. I mean, maybe it is a knock on Showtime, you know, eventually, and not, it, but not really. It's sort of, I want to look at things that are interesting in the totality. Neither has been there yet, but let's end this side note and get back to sort of the the discussion. I mean, back to the Wilder fight. We're we're at a real moment in time for them. I mean, Showtime paid a record. If they didn't pay a record amount of fight, it's a modern day complete scale breaker for Showtime. Uh, it's clearly going to uh, have an impact on their programming. It already has probably had an impact on their programming this year. Uh, that's probably its own separate deep dive. Maybe that's what I do next episode, uh, or certainly if not next episode, the one after. I mean, needless to say, the quality sort of in terms of overall fights at Showtime until this Wilder fight has taken a dip compared to what Showtime was doing last year. Wilder was rumored to have been offered about $20 million for this fight over at DAZN. And it likely took at least a comparable amount of money to take the fight on Showtime, even though Showtime apparently didn't pay all of it. So as we're starting to follow the cookie crumbs here and just sort of see where they lead, they're taking us to a lot of interesting places. And first of all, when you look at Showtime's pay scale, it's likely been around two, maybe $2.5 million for the fighter as an A side of a main event. And there's probably few and far between of those, uh, you know, paydays in, in terms of like, you're the A side payday, you get 2 million, you get 2.1. I think Deontay Wilder last year against the Ortiz fight, which happened in March, I believe that reported payday was $2.1 million to the New York State Athletic Commission. It certainly could have been higher. Those those paydays aren't always reported uh, you know, officially. And, and obviously, those paydays aren't necessarily what Showtime is paying Deontay Wilder. There's Gate, there's other, there's international, you know, stuff. There's, you know, there's other ways of earning money. But in terms of what Showtime's paying, you kind of have to assume that that's what the A-side pay scale is. And most of the time, I think the A, the A side main event fighters are in that one to $1.5 million range, depending on the quality of the B side, sometimes even less. Uh, I think there, I think there's plenty of fights where the A side only gets 500 to $750,000 here though. The B side likely earned a lot too. And Showtime, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. I don't have any info on this. It wouldn't surprise me if they paid as much as $10 million or even more for the fight, maybe even 12 or 13 million. Now, a couple significant things there. Like, first and foremost, Showtime's boxing budget uh, for 2019 apparently increased, maybe not super significantly, but it did have a significant increase from 2018. And even just putting on one fight like this may have wiped out that entire increase. I mean, they're supposed to also be putting on more shows than they have been in the past. And when you factor in the rating, which, let's be honest, wasn't good at all. You don't want the higher ups at Showtime or at C, you know at CBS to look at the numbers and say like why are we doing this? We paid how much for a fight and it did what kind of number on cable? Now I think there's a lot of mitigating factors there. What you need to do internally is to provide a lot of context for that because when you say we paid how much for a fight and it only did 791,000 viewers, like it's easy to just say oh that's a failure and. The rating in and of itself, I mean, it is kind of crazy. When you factor in the streaming and some of the other stuff, 
you know, I, I think there's a little bit more of a story to tell, especially with the competition at fate. I mean, I think ESPN did its largest rating of the season so far. Maybe it may be a historic playoff rating. Uh, I believe I don't have that info right in front of me, but I did read some statistics that it did incredibly well. So yes, that is a factor, but let's just go back to the fight itself. I mean, the crazy thing about all this is I think despite those outward appearances in terms of numbers, you can make an argument that this was actually worth it for a lot of reasons. Let's say Wilder did get 20 million or close to it for this fight. Then the PBC likely footed the bill for the difference. I mean, that's been heavily rumored and is probably true. They probably footed the bill for the difference that Showtime could make up. And that could have easily been several million dollars, maybe as much as $10 million. The highlights went to CBS.com and if, remember, if they were on, if this fight was on pay-per-view, it would have done much less of an audience. The highlights probably wouldn't have gone to CBS.com because, you know, and look, every pay-per-view is different. Maybe they would have made an exception for this one. But the replay of the fight, of the pay-per-view fight, would have been happening a week later on Showtime. So they wouldn't, it wouldn't have been in their best interest to let out any highlights on social media. So the only highlights that would have come out would have been shut down on YouTube right away. The highlights on CBS, like I said at the top, over 10 million viewers now likely to get even more uh, than that overall is because it was such an awesome highlight. I mean, you're probably going to see it in all kinds of GIFs and memes. And so, you know, I mean, like th- that kind of stuff makes a big, de- it's a big deal on social media. And even though it was missed by many people on, li- uh, on live TV, you can actually make an argument that it creates a real buzz around Wilder. Like he becomes can't miss TV. He could knock out anyone at any moment and it builds real hype around him that a lot of people wanted to see it, but didn't actually see it. I mean, it goes back to that joke, you know, about the guy who paid $1,500 for seats back in whatever, you know, the late 80s for Tyson Spinks and missed the whole fight because Tyson knocked him out in 91 seconds. I mean, that is, as a marketer, FOMO, you know, fear of missing out is essentially how you sell boxing on pay-per-view especially with guys like that that are really exciting and can have a knockout at any time. I mean, that's how you basically sell, like, can't miss television. You know, I actually think Wilder truly entered the mainstream conversation, uh, you know, mainstream sports conversation after the Fury fight, and I think this puts him back in it. And, I mean, if we're truly being honest here, the other, the next factor in this whole thing is this type of purse to be on Showtime isn't a repeatable event because of what I described above. I mean, the only reason he is getting paid this much is because DAZN came in with a crazy offer, you know. So, of course, from here on out, Wilder is headed to pay-per-view. But the beauty of this for Showtime execs is it probably means he's headed to Showtime pay-per-view rather than Fox pay-per-view. And that's a big deal for Showtime. I actually think they can now make a case internally that despite the poor rating, they put on a buzzworthy event and they locked up their guy. Uh, And and of course, I'm assuming that's what they did, either legally through a lawyer or through their relationship with him. Now, I I, I think he still moves fight to fight. But, you know, the key thing, I've talked about this many times before, because the PBC has two platforms – you're essentially, and and I believe that PBC is incentivized to put pay-per-view fights on Fox pay-per-view because of the way their deal is structured. So that puts Showtime execs at a disadvantage in a lot of ways. And I believe that this now gives them the sort of in to have Wilder on their pay-per-view platform, which probably matters to them greatly to keep boxing on their network. I mean, in a lot of ways, they're now tied at the hip with Wilder uh, for their success. Like I said above, they can internally also make the argument. They can mitigate concerns over the rating by adding in the streaming, by adding in the views for the highlights. Probably they did great numbers over the past couple of days on DVR and uh, on demand through cable uh, and, and, and through streaming, not necessarily live, but streaming after the fact. You know, Showtime is going through a very fallow period in boxing. I have faith in them. But given how light their fall was last year and then how poor the start of 2019 has been for them, you know, I think it was important for them to deliver an event like this on regular Showtime. 
No, I don't want to dip into that. I think that's another deep dive uh, where, where, where hopefully they will get a big rally off this. But I think this could be looked at as a point to start that rally. All right, so let's move on what it means for Showtime. We've been talking about this fight, which didn't even go a full round for quite a while yet, for quite a while now. We haven't even got yet to what I think is the most interesting part, which is I think that the way this fight went down is the first time in a long time where we actually might have some hope on the horizon for the big heavyweights to start fighting each other. I actually think it was headed the other way for a long time and, and, and the, the goalposts kept get pushing back. And I think now this might've stemmed the tide of that. I mean, one of the things I've been drilling home on this podcast when it comes to the heavyweight division is you shouldn't expect these fights for a while. I've tried to be the bearer of bad news in sort of the most responsible way possible by explaining how hard it is to make these fights a fiscal reality. Wilder Fury did 325,000 buys, and with the money that Wilder is turning down from the zone, PBC is basically saying that they think they can do better on pay-per-view. So I've tried to explain both how difficult it is to do better than, than a, you know, a, an offer of $40 million just to Deontay Wilder. I'll sort of refresh everyone's memory right now just for a second. If you assume that Wilder and Anthony Joshua are taking a 50-50 split, for American television, and are both getting paid $40 million each. So $80 million total is going just to the main event fighters, not the undercard fighters, not any other costs for putting on the event or anything like that. You are going to sell the pay-per-view. If you're assuming you're selling the pay-per-view at $100, and you are assuming you're taking the most aggressive splits in your favor possible with distributors, which, by the way, severely limits your marketing capabilities. You probably need to sell 1.5 million pay-per-views to get to the point where you even start to feel okay about what you're doing. And if you're talking normal pay-per-view splits at $70, where you're depending on your distributor, your distribution partners essentially to provide a lot of marketing. And remember, you'll need it because even though Wilder even though I think this puts him much more into the mainstream discussion and helps out, helps you out a lot, he's still not super well-known in the United States. Anthony Joshua, barely well-known in the United States. And, and hopefully, you're basically saying from this event, hopefully, Anthony Joshua's June 1st event gets major coverage. But anyways, back to the actual numbers. If you're talking normal pay-per-view splits at $70, which is kind of, you know, most pay-per-views recently have been either selling at $70 or $80, so I'm just giving the low end now. You aren't even sniffing profitability at 1.5 million buys. You probably aren't making it to eighty to eighty million dollars uh, for both fighters. If you're if you're doing a seventy dollar pay per view and you do two million buys, and you do normal if not generous pay per view splits for the distributors, you're probably not making it to eighty million dollars total for the two fighters at two million pay per view buys. I mean, there's a pathway to do it depending on how you do the splits. But just remember, once you're in that 2 million pay-per-view buy range, I think Tyson Holyfield, the rematch, did almost 2 million buys. I don't think it quite got there. I think, you know, I th that was way before my time. But when you – I haven't seen the official number, but when you look at uh, the way it was reported, it's like 1.9 something. Maybe it's 1.95. Maybe it's 1.99 or whatever. But it, I don't – no one's actually put a two in front of it. So it didn't quite get to two million pay-per-view buys. So the only time in boxing, now it's happened in MMA once, but the only time in boxing where fights have ever gone two million buys or higher is with Floyd Mayweather. He did it four times. He did it with Canelo, Oscar, and he was the B-side with Oscar, Pacquiao, and you can say that, the, you know, Canelo uh, Mayweather's clearly the A-side. McGregor was the other one. He's Mayweather's clearly the A-side with that, although Pacquiao and McGregor, you know, brought huge audiences as well, as did Canelo. I mean, that, that's why they got so high. But it's only happened four times. It's only happened with Floyd Mayweather. And so you're setting the bar very, very high in terms of expected pay-per-view buys to do better than what DAZN is offering right now. And I'm not saying it's not possible. I actually think it is possible, but 
to do that, you're delaying the fight tremendously because you have to get these guys, their public profile to the place where the general public heavily, there's heavy demand from the general public to see this fight. So it's, in a lot of ways, like the overall takeaway more than anything else is as hardcore fans, we are all now rooting for Deontay Wilder to become a commercial success in the United States. Like this highlight, this single event may have actually really helped that cause, which I think is significant. I mean, because if you're going to turn down that zone money, and I've just explained how hard it is to come up with that kind of that kind of money doing pay-per-view, what you're you're doing if you represent Wilder in these discussions is you're playing the long game and you're betting on Wilder being a long-term commercial success where you are doing not only huge numbers against Anthony Joshua, but you're doing huge numbers against Tyson Fury, and you're betting that Wilder comes out of both of those fights on top with knockout victories and that he can then do it against lesser-known fighters and still make major pay-per-view dollars. Now look, maybe Wilder takes the next DAZN offer, if it's a shorter length and more money or something like that. I mean, but in terms of, you know, to, to drive this point home, in terms of pay-per-view sales, when you turn that, down that kind of money, like, if you're a hardcore fan, you are now rooting for casual fans to take interest. So you can get to that one million buy conversation. Because, look, no one jumps in one fight from 325,000 buys to 2 million buys. Like, I know that if you're listening to this podcast, it's probably just the hardcore fan base that's listening. And you want to watch the fight, like, you're now, you your direct rooting interest is for Deontay Wilder to become a public figure with real commercial value. And I think what happened Saturday starts to get us there. With the number of pay-per-views that are happening in this market, we need a star to emerge. I mean, what if you look historically what has happened when there have been a pattern of lower number of pay-per-views, that's usually what happens. A star emerges out of it, and then it starts to get, you see less pay-per-views, but you see more buys for each pay-per-view. And Deontay Wilder has a real chance to be that star that emerges. I mean, if you look at like the pathway for him to emerge as that guy from America, he has legit opponents. Like he already has a few entrances into the mainstream. He has generational power. I've seen a lot of people talk about how his boxing has improved. I don't know if that's quite a narrative that you would say. I mean, the the way he knocked out Dominic Brazil did show improvement in his boxing, and I think Mark Breland has also been an important figure in terms of bringing that improvement uh, in sort of technique. But, I mean, I think remember with Deontay Wilder, the best analogy I could come up with here is he actually, he just needs to be adequate in other areas to actually be really good. Like Steph Curry is the analogy here. Like Steph Curry ends up being really effective at driving to the basket, but not because he's excellent at driving to the basket. It's because he is generationally elite at shooting three pointers and Wilder's kind of the same way. Like, he just needs an adequate jab, but an adequate jab actually becomes a great jab when you have generationally elite power, like Deontay Wilder has. I mean, you guys know I don't talk about the in-ring stuff much because most of the time for this podcast, it doesn't actually matter that much. With Wilder, it actually matters. Like, he needs to improve his technique as a fighter because the risk with him and with the other heavyweights for various reasons, is that they'll lose. And yes, like, I don't think Deontay Wilder gets enough credit for how good he is as a fighter and how much he's improved. Like, it's not just his power that's... His power is generationally elite. I don't think any other attribute is. But his stamina is certainly elite for heavyweight. His chin, of which there were real questions early in his career, is actually pretty good now. Like... This stuff matters because every fight you delay the real big ones, you're essentially taking a $40 million risk and you need Deontay Wilder to win. And no one can sit here and say that they know the risk is worth it or not because Wilder is vulnerable. Like if he fought Usyk, let's say, and this is something I think which should put into perspective how good Deontay Wilder actually is. I've loved the Usyk fight. I've been mentioning it for months on this podcast. I'd still favor Usyk, but only slightly. 
only slightly. I mean, you can make a very strong argument that that's a 50-50 fight. And that really says a lot because many people that I respect their opinions tremendously have Usyk in their top five pound for pound or even as high as number one pound for pound. Usyk and Wilder are basically the same size. I mean, Wilder has a few inches and a few pounds on him, but that's really it. They're basically the same size. I mean, I think Usyk would have, like, if I broke that fight down, I think Usyk would have a great chance to kind of do what Fury did to Wilder, but actually have more power and precision. So he could really, he could have a much better chance of stopping Wilder. Like, I don't think Fury has a chance to stop Wilder. And I think Usyk does. So so that's how I think the fight would go. But Wilder could very easily knock out Usyk. He, he very easily could. I think Usyk isn't as responsibly, def- you know, isn't as defensively responsibly as Fury is. And Fury got knocked down twice. Wilder can knock out anyone. So even if you criticize his technique, and like I said, it, it is, you, it's there to be criticized. You can't really put him that far out of the pound for pound discussion, which is kind of crazy because I don't think anyone's had him close to that for a while. I hope that logic works just with the Usyk fight because, you know, I think the issue becomes like there, there's a big three in heavyweights right now. There might be a, a big four if Usyk gets established there. And if the gap between that top four is larger than we thought against all the other heavyweights, and these guys aren't quite as vulnerable as we thought, I mean, it gets easier to push off the really big fights. I I have never faulted network execs or managers to push them off because if it was me and I was given the task of doing those crazy numbers on pay I'd be pushing the fights down the road. I basically think every single place other than DAZN should try to be pushing these fights down the road, or at least up until this past weekend. I think we're at a we're at a breaking point right now for a different different reason. Um, I mean, but just you know, it, maybe that makes the networks execs sort of the bad guys, or at least it makes me delivering the bad news. But I think the exciting thing from Saturday was it was the first hopeful sign in a while that maybe we can do this. I think there is mainstream potential for this, and there's certainly fodder for building up any of these matchups. I mean, Wilder Fury 2 can be a lot bigger after Saturday. I mean, you know, even all, all you need is Fury to come out of his fight with a few highlights, and more importantly, going through that ESPN PR and marketing machine once in the buildup, hopefully in the aftermath too. Uh, and and all of a sudden you could be staring at a much bigger fight for their rematch. I would say you can at least do double. You could probably do triple at this point after that kind of stuff. There there should be real fodder to build up that fight. It becomes very, very marketable in a co-promotion. You know, if it's Wilder versus AJ, maybe it's just about the length of the deal. I mean, I hope DAZN comes back with a one or two fight offer and keeps the crazy money it probably means we see that fight. And if it doesn't, it tells us a lot about what lengths Fox and Showtime are willing to do in order to just be sure that DAZN doesn't succeed. Maybe even based on the rumors with PBC Endeavor, it means there's some sort of vested vested interest in there, which side note, if you care about that stuff, and I know some people have contacted me about that, if you care about that stuff, listen to Kurt Emhoff and his podcast with John Nash about that. They covered a lot of that really, really well. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that for right now. You know, I have, I have a lot of, I have, I have a lot to say about that. Probably now is not the time. And, 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 uh, th- that could be its own whole podcast. I mean, you could probably do a series of podcasts on that. Start there though. Those guys covered it really, really well. Let's put it this way. I'm sure if they really are going to make a deal like that, I'm sure have Endeavor has an, a, an opinion on who, you know, what fights Deontay Wilder takes and, and when he takes them. But the bottom line is I come out of this weekend and despite, a, you know, let's be honest, a crappy cable TV rating, I think we're actually closer to seeing the fights we want to see. I'm hopeful. I'm quite frankly agnostic as to how or where they happen. And 
going into the weekend, I thought that most likely Wilder would win by uneventful KO with a crappy TV rating that wouldn't move the needle at all, and we would just be further away from seeing the fights. So I think it's a win. I think it's a big win. Credit Showtime for giving the platform and taking the risk. Credit PBC for making up the fiscal difference in order for the fight to happen. Credit DAZONE for making all this discussion with their lucrative offers. And I think this, one of two things will happen based on all of these swirling scenarios. One is that the PBC, PBC should rightfully be scared of this number, and it forces them to move on a bigger DAZONE offer. That's very, you know, you could you can make an argument, that's very likely. Like, the other thing I'd say is they could target an Ortiz fight, but tell Wilder they can't offer him a huge guarantee, give him a piece of the, you know, a bigger piece of the upside, and then they do a pay-per-view, they do that fight on pay-per-view, and it becomes a real benchmark in terms of where everything is. I mean, if it does better than for, you know, 500,000 buys, then you have to think that Wilder Fury 2 could probably hit a million, maybe even more if promoted correctly. But if it doesn't, when does Showtime cut their losses or at least admit to themselves that they can't invest quite so much in one fighter? I mean, that's kind of, that's why I think we're at this weird breaking point. I mean, either way, I don't think it'll be long before hands are forced in this situation and, and Wilder makes a big fight somewhere. Like, there's too much unsustainability in what's happening. The DAZN big money offers won't continue forever. This is the moment you know, for Deontay Wilder, where he either becomes a pay-per-view attraction and can do these deals more on his terms and still get paid big, or if he, you know, or he can't. And he's got to take a big money deal with his own to get that generational wealth that he's seeking. And no matter which way it goes, the reason I feel this way is just what we're doing right now is unsustainable. Showtime and PBC can't keep chipping in their own money to match huge offers. DAZONE is either going to spend big money on this fight or they're going to find something else to spend money on because they only have a limited amount of time to hit their sub numbers or none of this stuff matters. And I mean, if they move on and they get like the NFL DirecTV package or something like that, I mean, then 50 million or 80 million, whatever they're going to spend on a fight like this, like that's, that's gone. And you can't use their crazy offers as leverage anymore to get paid in a Brazil level fight. For me, I don't really care where these fights end up. I just want to see them happen. And it looked like they were going to continue to get delayed even further. And I hope for consumers that this path of unsustainability, like, I hope that's off. I mean, the thing that sucks for consumers is that you're all paying for this right now. Like you've paid for it in quality on Showtime Maybe even quality on Fox, too, depending on how much extra money that PBC had to, to put in to get this fight made. But you'll recover, and you're now hopefully closer to seeing the stuff that you really want to see. I mean, I don't think you'll see it next unless zone really comes through. But, I, I, you know, you likely weren't seeing it next no matter what. Once Wilder turned down the DAZN offer, the goalpost got sent way back. And I think after this past weekend, they got moved back up. So I'm optimistic. All right. Let's move on to the preview section. I already previewed the fights coming up this weekend, but there weren't odds last week on some of them. So let me move through them. Uh, for the ESPN fight, Masi uh, Masayuki Ito fights Jamel Herring. He's, Ito actually started out as a 25-to-1 favorite, and the line is now like closer to even odds, which is kind of crazy. I think... It's really less about how competitive the fight is, and it's more about the betting market. Either way, I think 25 to 1 was way off. I'm not sure it's an even odds fight, but I think either way it's really competitive, and it's probably quality TV. Uh, no odds I've seen yet on the Jose Pedraza comeback fight against Antonio Lozada. Uh, expect Pedraza to be a big favorite there. No odds on the FS1 card with Austin Trout versus Terrell Gaucher. Uh, at junior middleweight. I've talked about that before. I think there's a huge opportunity for the winner here. I actually, I don't know whether that's going to make it good TV or not good TV because when the stakes are this high and the fighters don't have a history of being terribly entertaining, which neither of these guys really do, although Austin Trout, against the, in the right matchup, he certainly can be. 
then sometimes it gets tense and, and sometimes it's not the best TV. And sometimes they go at it with, they lay everything on the line and sometimes it's great. So I'm hoping that one is really good. I mean, I, you know, I'm looking forward to it either way, whatever it is, but you, you know, on FS1 at this point with the viewership numbers they've gotten, and especially, you know, I said this last episode, I don't expect either of these cards to get great TV ratings, uh, just because of, you know, the holiday weekend and everything. Uh, so, you know, you, you, I'm looking for that. You hope it ends up being more entertaining than not. And you hope it, it gets, you know, bigger numbers, but I'm, I'm not super optimistic about that. Uh, there's the DAZN card. Devin Haney is a 25 to one favorite over Antonio Moran. He's obviously expected to win and, and big things are expected from him. Michael Hunter is a 50 to one favorite over Fabio Maldonado, the, I believe, former MMA fighter. So those should be squash matches. I think, I'm still interested in seeing those guys. Hopefully they're, you know, we see good stuff from them and, and they're in more competitive fights coming up soon. On to the next big fight card, Saturday, June 1st from DAZN, uh, from New York, where we have Anthony Joshua fighting Andy Ruiz for Joshua's IBF, WBA, and WBO heavyweight title belts. Also on the card, Callum Smith fighting Hassam Endam. Chris Algieri fighting Tommy Croyle and Katie Taylor fighting Delphine Persoon for the women's lightweight unification. AJ is about a 25 to one favorite over Ruiz. Although I'm sure some people uh, will say that Ruiz has a pathway to victory. I don't, I'm not sure he does, but I think it could be a really entertaining TV fight. Calum Smith is a 35 to one favorite over Endom with Endom. It's usually entertaining TV, but it's usually Endom getting knocked down a bunch of times. I hope this, you know, I hope it's good TV on that. Algiers like a four to one fave of recoil that should go rounds, and I think that's just more. Let's see where Chris Algieri is. Katie Taylor's fifteen to one over Pursuun. Uh Not great odds in def- for you know all over the card. In defense of the card, Miller caused the main event to get less competitive and and interesting based on what happened with him. But this is still a really big event based on AJ coming to New York and based on the potential that exists out there. We will certainly talk about it uh, next episode. All right. Also on the card, or also on June 1st, there is a Fox Sports 1 card. Devin Alexander versus Ivan Redcatch. Uh, Hugo Centeno Jr. versus Willie Monroe Jr. These are interesting fights. And I mean, I think that based on, you'd have to think that zone does a pretty good streaming number. I don't think they'd release it like they did Canelo. But you have to think they do a pretty good streaming number. And these are actually these are really strong fights for Fox Sports One. I mean, I'm not super psyched. You know, Willie Monroe Jr. and Hugo Centeno Jr. Uh, you know, that is that's lower level at this point, and, and maybe not the most exciting TV. But you know, Devin Alexander, Ivan Rakesh, that could be a really fun fight. So interested to see what that does, and and obviously interested to, to talk about uh, what happens with AJ and and what that means for the heavyweight division. Uh, and, and I'll be back in two weeks. This was a fun emergency pod went over 50 minutes. I, I don't, God, I don't know how I talked this long by myself, but anyways, we'll come back in two weeks and then we'll stay on that every two week pattern, uh, for the foreseeable future based off that good stuff, guys. Talk to you. In- Did you get what you was looking for? With the lucky land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.